Good morning, everybody. Thank you. My name is Ronnie. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, the Salt Company director. That's our college ministry. We are, if you're new and jumping in, we're studying through the book of Acts in, in our Bibles. And so if you have a Bible, you want to pull that out. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 today. And if you don't have one, we have them at the welcome table on your way out. Maybe your neighbor's got one, but we're going to kind of just follow along with Acts chapter 12, or 5, verses 12 through 42 this morning. And so you can just kind of jump in and turn there. And for those of us that have been going on this journey, I hope that, that Acts has been as challenging to you all as it has been to me. Like this is, it's, it's such a, a gift to get to look through this book, this account of the early church and see what they did. And there's this thing where as we're seeing what they did, we're kind of we're getting to just the essence of what Christianity is, what the gospel is supposed to do in people. And then there's this thing from God where he's, he's calling us forward. He's, he's saying, like, I, I want you to be like this. Like, this is what my church is meant to be. And so it's a great challenge. And as I was thinking about it this week, it reminded me of that scene, that famous scene that, that you guys have heard of where Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat in the storm with his disciples. And he sees Peter and locks eyes with him and asks Peter to kind of come out onto the water with him, right? And so Jesus, he's clearly doing a miracle, Clearly something, like he's, he's a place that Peter has never been, but he's saying, Peter, I want you to come and be with me. I want you to walk on the water. And amazingly, Peter is able to do it, and he's walking out towards Jesus. But if you remember what happens, while his eyes are fixed on Jesus and he walks towards him, he walks with faith and confidence, and he makes progress. But the second that he starts to kind of like look around at the winds and the waves around him and look back down at his own two feet, what happens? He starts to sink. And there's this thing, there's this danger in Acts, I think, where we can start to look at, at just this incredible book and all that the early church did. We hear this call from Jesus just challenging us in a ton of different ways, personally, as a church, just this, this whole new paradigm and vision for what our life should be about, Jesus calling us out onto the waters. But then we start to look at the world around us. We start to look at kind of our own inadequacies, our own shortcomings, and we start to look at our own two feet, and then we start to, to sink instead of make progress. Rather than being filled with faith from looking at Jesus, we're filled with fear, and we start to sink. And so it'll kind of play out like this. Like on a Sunday morning, you're inspired from the message, but then Monday morning rolls around, and there's just like this gap between you being able to live it out and apply it. And here's this principle that I want to give us today as we jump into this passage, because our passage today is a great opportunity for us to, to learn this, that here it is, when we pay more attention to our circumstances and what we need to do in life, we're going to be filled with fear and we're going to sink just like Peter. But when we can learn to actually just like focus on Jesus and see what he's doing, be able to see and spot how God is doing what only he can do, we're going to be filled with faith and paradoxically, we're actually going to be able to move Forward. So the way forward isn't by looking at our own feet, our own circumstances, but it's looking at Jesus and letting him inspire us and move us forward. And that's the opportunity we get to see in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42 today. So if you want to look there with me, what I want you to look at, we're just going to kind of run through it at first and then we'll dive back in. I want you to just look and kind of ask the question of who is really moving the gospel forward here? Who, who is really the main actor? You're going to see the apostles in here and you're going to see some opposition but who's, who's doing the real work, okay? So pick it up in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, 
multitudes of both men and women. So there's just this incredible momentum happening right now, like more than ever. And there's been a lot that's already happened so far, but more than ever, multitudes of both men and women are being added to the Lord, verse 15, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so the gospel is starting to break out of even Jerusalem. Did you notice that? There's people that are starting to hear, like, what is happening in the early church is so significant that in a day without technology like ours, people in the surrounding regions are starting to hear about it. There's incredible momentum. And this is a crazy scene, right? If you really look at it, like the apostles, basically what, what Luke is trying to show us is they have become walking miracles. They just walk around and Peter's, Peter's shadow is healing people as he walks by people. And, and the question you got to ask is, is Luke trying to say like, okay, there must be some very interesting backstory here where they engineered some type of technology where now Peter's shadow is like sending off particles and like the genius of the apostles has, has been able to kind of make this wave, has been able to make this momentum. No. No, right? Like God is trying to say they're a walking miracle because God has come down. If you followed the gospel of Luke, which is kind of the precursor to Acts, or you even looked at Acts chapter 1, which we've studied, the apostles were cowards. They were, they were fearful. They were afraid. They see the resurrection of Jesus, and they're so bewildered, not knowing what to do, but then he tells them, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to wait in Jerusalem until I clothe you with power, and then you're going to go and be my witnesses. And that's what we're starting to see here is that the apostles, they're clothed with power. So this first little part, it's very clearly not that the apostles are geniuses or that they're talented, but it's that God is coming down in a pretty spectacular way. Look at verse 17. But, so here comes the opposition, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And he said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Okay, so again, this isn't a brilliant prison break, right? Like it doesn't say that Peter and John and the apostles, like Peter had like a, a map tattooed on him of how to get out of the prison and everybody else was digging a tunnel and they had this ingenious plan and they sneaked, like there's a lot of great movies about that, like highlighting how, how people can figure out how to do some crazy things like that. But what does the text say? The apostles clothed with power from God are just kind of minding their own business. They get thrown into prison. They don't even put up that good of a fight, it seems like. And then an angel just comes and, and lets them out. God sends an angel. And guys, an angel, just to kind of clarify our thinking on this, is a military messenger in the Bible. Angels show up when God is coming down in a powerful way to mess with the forces of darkness. And this is for sure the forces of darkness because we see that they were jealous, which is like the primal emotion of the devil towards God. So, so the Sadducees and the, and the Senate and all these, this opposition we're about to see, it is, it is men, but it is satanic forces of darkness coming against God and his people, and God is just mowing them down easily. Look where we pick it up again next. Verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel. Okay, so 
everybody is together. They've got these guys in prison. They're like, okay, let's get everybody together because we are now going to question these guys. And he's sent to the prison to have them brought. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Just picture, picture them having to do this. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, just pause again, like, so they're, they're perplexed, they're like, what is going on? Remember, they thought they had them. They got everybody together for this moment, and then they realized that they're not there. And then I, I feel like I've just seen this play out in movies and stuff where it's like the, the moment, and then they're kind of like bewildered what is going on, and then someone runs in, and look what he says in verse 25, look, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple right out there. They're teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they're all afraid of being stoned by the people. You start to see them kind of lose a little bit of confidence. Look at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This whole scene, it just reminds me of just all the Home Alone movies, right? Where like this, they are just being completely outwitted and they, like God is making them look stupid. God is clearly coming down in power right now in a unique way. And the apostles are there, but don't you see that they're just kind of along for the ride. We don't see any kind of backstory of how the escape happened. We just know that the prison guards didn't even realize that the angel just came in. So they're greatly perplexed. And then right on cue, this person walks in is like, well, here they are out there. And so, so the whole point of what Luke is trying to do is just trying to paint this picture for us and tell us this story and show us that, that these people are realizing they have no way of stopping the apostles. They have no way. And so, so what's the point of this again? It's not that the apostles are outsmarted the council, it's that God is, is messing with them and it's all so easy for him. And that's why the apostles, they just respond, all we can do is obey God. We're just, we're just witnesses to these things. And so what do you do when you start to be made look silly, especially in front of like everybody that they called to see this event, is you start to get really angry. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And so now the apostles are in a pretty tough spot, right? They got everybody against them. And just when you think that, that God has maybe pushed this thing a little bit too far, because again, the apostles are not engineering this. It's just God kind of moving his plan forward. And now it looks like they're going to die. But then look what God does next, verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. Now notice this pattern here. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Verse 37. 
And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And now notice the, par- the pattern. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So Gamaliel stands up, and Gamaliel, he's this really influential rabbi. It says he's respected by all the people. He's actually the rabbi that would one day, or that was, had mentored and uh, taught the apostle Paul, who will kind of learn his story in a couple chapters. And in this angry, jealous rage as they're about to kill the apostles, Gamaliel basically stands up and says, guys, this, this might be a really bad idea. He's like, I've seen a lot of movements come and go. There have been a lot of of men. There's been a lot of men and women throughout history that have raised up and and gotten a following. And listen, every time that the founder dies, the followers eventually scatter and the movement dies. The followers lose all their momentum. But guys, this is different because we killed the founder. We killed Jesus. We were certain of that. And these guys were like cowards when Jesus was alive and then when he died, and now they're fearless. Like the exact opposite pattern is starting to emerge. Like they're gaining momentum now that their founder has died. And so the statement that he makes really just kind of sums up what this passage is ultimately about. He says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And what Gamaliel has his finger on here is he's seeing the momentum of the early church start to build, and he's realizing, guys, this is not, this is not a man-made thing. There, there are men that we're looking at right in front of us, but this is something, it looks like God is in this. In the last two verses, verse 41, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So notice, the apostles, they're not taking any credit for what's happening. They're rejoicing, right? But they're not rejoicing like after a game that they won. They're rejoicing, what does it say? Because they were counted worthy to suffer. Like in their weakness, in their, in their, there was no heroic effort on their part except for that they just kind of were there and God pulled them along. But they're rejoicing in this belief that they were caught up in something that God was doing, not that they were doing. Something that God was doing. They were chosen by God. And then it says, they did not cease. They did not cease. They're starting to realize that our God is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. And so we're going to start living and acting like we are unstoppable. The gospel keeps going. The apostles can't be stopped because God can't be stopped. And so the point of this text, guys, is that the church is gaining momentum not because of the brilliant tactics of the apostles. Even though the very first word it says, by the hand of the apostles this is happening, what are we starting to realize? The hand of the apostles, the real actions of real human beings are actually being pushed forward and carried along by the hand of God. And what we're going to see in Acts and what we're starting to see even more clearly today is that the gospel is like this wave, just like a, a big tidal wave. That at the resurrection of Jesus, it started. And he said, I'm going to clothe you in power. I'm going to give you the power of my Holy Spirit, my holy presence. And I'm going to send you out as my witnesses. And the wave is starting to gain momentum and grow. 
The wave is growing. It's gaining momentum. It's about to burst out of Jerusalem and nothing can stop it. But here's kind of the point. The apostles didn't make the wave. The apostles' role isn't to make the wave. Our role isn't to make the wave. Our role isn't to create spiritual momentum for God. Our role, like a skilled surfer, is to ride the wave of God's momentum. That's what they're doing in this passage, to ride the wave. Now, does anybody know what this thing is? Right here. A couple people from Hawaii up in the front. Okay, so this is called musubi, and it is rice, spam, and seaweed. The Cardosa family randomly gave this to me, and I was going to talk about them anyways. So this is a delicious treat from Hawaii. This, this really has nothing to do with anything except for a segue to talk about this. So the Cardosas are uh, connection group leaders in our church. Danny's one of our elders in, in training, and they used to live in Hawaii. And so when I kind of saw this playing out in the text this week, I was, like, I was trying to find a way of what's a, what's a way to capture what is going on and just this wave that God is doing, but we're riding it like a surfer. So I asked, I asked Danny how that, is that true? <laughs> how does this work? Never surfed before. And interestingly, he told me like, yeah, dude, surfers are obsessed with just trying to find the perfect wave and then riding it. He doesn't even live in Hawaii anymore, but he still just checks every morning on his computer, like what the surf and what the waves are, are like over there. But the key thing that a surfer is doing, guys, listen, is not creating momentum. It's finding the momentum. It's finding the wave and then joining it and riding it. And, and that's what that's what we're called to do as God's people, is we're supposed to kind of see what God is doing. We don't need to create waves in our city. You don't need to create waves in that relationship that seems hard to break through, but you need to see more clearly what God is doing and then join him into that. But the challenge sometimes, it's hard to see what God is doing, right? Isn't it hard sometimes to see that? It's hard to see the hand of God. We start to look at our circumstances and they look so bleak, or we start to look at our own sin, our own inability, and we take our, our eyes off of him. But what I want to do for the rest of our time is kind of like, make the invisible hand of God a little bit more visible by looking back at this story. I think there's four things in here that kind of give us a sketch of what this, this massive gospel wave looks like so we can see more clearly what God is doing and be filled with confidence and faith rather than fear in our lives. Okay, so number one, God is turning death into life. This is, this is something God is doing. This is the momentum he's creating. He's turning death into life. So my favorite thing to do on, on Saturdays in the fall is watch uh, college football, starting with college game day in the morning. Me and my boys go to Greenbush Donuts, get a bunch of donuts, come back to the house. Game day is just kind of on in the background. Caitlin cooks, cooks up a big breakfast. And there was one particular uh, morning about a month ago where Jackson, my two-year-old, and I were watching game day. And this, uh, sometimes they'll do like a little special uh, episode, a little show inside of it on, on somebody who's playing college football. And the person they highlighted in this day was a guy named Casey O'Brien, who is a football player at the University of Minnesota. And he's also a four-time cancer survivor. So he has osteosarcoma, a rare form of, of, form of bone cancer. And just kind of the show, it just kind of in seven minutes traced out his story, everything from when they found a softball-sized tumor in his knee that then moved to his lungs. And then even just this past January, he had a tumor removed for the fourth time. But kind of the whole thing was just about how despite all that adversity, despite having cancer, he was able to beat it. And football was just a huge part of that. Like he was, he was able to overcome adversity. Even, he even said at one point that football kept him alive. And so he's actually 
on the University of Minnesota football team. He's a, a placeholder for the, the kicking game. And there came this moment where just kind of everything is, is building towards seeing Casey O'Brien as like, as like this, this cancer survivor. And it talks about how he, he wears wristbands of, of all of his friends and just different people that he's met that haven't survived cancer. So just really, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there with my two-year-old son watching this, and his dad is like being interviewed. Very inspirational, very, very amazing to see the ways that God has allowed us to innovate in technology to be able to like heal all different types of cancer. And so Casey is still alive. But he started to talk about his wristbands um, of friends that he's had that didn't survive. And I started to kind of tear up as I'm watching him talk about this because I'm looking at my own son and, you know, wondering, like, is he going to play football someday and all these different things. And as he starts talking about the wristbands, he says, these remind me of my friends that are no longer alive to remind me that nothing is promised. And I, w- I was crying in that moment, and I looked over at Jack, and I wasn't crying because what he said was true. Like, I wasn't crying because nothing is promised. Jackson didn't understand what I was talking about, but I looked at Jack, and I was like, Jack, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jack, they don't, they don't know about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, my emotion in that moment, like, his emotion was towards the fact that like, nothing is promised after death. And I was crying because of the massive deception that is going on in our world that, that yeah, Satan would love us to believe that nothing is promised. Satan would love us to look at, look at a, a wristband and think, like, yeah, that's it. That's it. Maybe football or something else can get you through, but nothing is promised. But we look at the empty tomb the resurrection of Jesus Christ as this massive monument in the middle of the human story, this thing that people actually know about. People know about, but they don't know what it means. And what it means is that, yeah, everything is promised, actually. Actually, Satan, God has promised life to people. God has broke in to the world, and he is turning death into life. It is a lie from the pit of hell, that nothing is promised because actually what God has done is he's broken into our world and he has brought life back into the world. The cross of Jesus Christ was actually the death of death. The empty tomb was the birth of life. Look back at verse 30 and 31. Listen to what Peter said. He said, God raised Jesus whom you killed. God raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed. At the hands of men, the Son of God was killed. But you know what was happening in that moment is that death itself was being tricked. Death itself was being defeated. God used death against itself. God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 31 says he's now exalted as leader and savior. And so Jesus now stands offering life to the world. Like Jesus is is standing up saying, everything is promised. The devil would love us to believe that nothing is promised after this life. He would love for us to be crippled in fear, but actually what I came to do is bring life and peace and hope, and it's for you. And so verse 20, if you look back at that, what did the angel tell them to go out and talk about? He said, go speak about the words of this life, because our God has defeated death. We have this news to tell. Everything that's happening at that beginning scene where there's like demons being cast out and sick people being healed, the signs and the wonders, guys, it's, it's the hand of God reaching into a sin-cursed and broken world in a, in a unique way and saying, I have the power to defeat death. 
I have the power to bring life back into the human story. Because guys, it is, it is true if, if you don't know about the resurrection of Jesus that, that nothing is promised after death. That's, that's all that you know. But our responsibility as people is to say no. We are not going to let that lie from Satan pervade over our culture because we know that life has been made available. And so we see these signs and wonders happening. The hand of God reaching in the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, they're all healed. This is a preview. This is a preview of what's to come. This is what the world is going to be like one day that God is going to make death swallowed up by life. And I want you to see this. The spiritual momentum, the most powerful force that is sweeping through history right now is life conquering death, trampling over death. So that's number one, and we need to see that. Every day that we wake up, that is true. Every day we get a day closer to when life will swallow up death forever. And we have to tell people about those words of life. Number two, uh, God is turning obstacles into opportunities. Look at this momentum here. So I don't know about you guys, but it doesn't always look like the gospel is just marching around or marching forward around me. Like I, I have a lot of friction. I have a lot of rejection with people around me. But this text is showing us that we just can't always see what is really going on. So just like the prison guards couldn't see how it was that they got released by the angel, we need to realize that sometimes opposition could be God actually opening a door. So God, he, he allows them to go into prison so that this angel can, can open them out. And it's just this picture of, of something that is happening in all of our lives where God is weaving together our stories, where we usually think that opposition is a momentum killer. But the story the Bible is telling that is now our story is that opposition is evidence that God is moving. When light is coming against darkness, there, there is opposition. And so suffering and, and persecution in our lives is something that God actually uses. He turns into opportunities for the gospel. And so what if your circumstances right now are an opportunity for God to move? What if we reframed that? What if what's happening in you and around you is something that God wants to work in? And sometimes we can't see the hand of God like in this moment, we see it more clearly later, but we could tell stories in this room of how God ruined our plans. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Like, aren't you guys all so glad that Rob has bad knees? I don't know if you guys know, know this about Rob, but if Rob's plans had worked out his way, he'd be playing, you know, football in the NFL right now, and he wouldn't know Jesus. But praise God, he had really bad knees. Tripped in the mud a couple times. Maybe, the, the, I don't know, the clumsiness before the knees. I don't know which would have which came first. But what happened in Rob's story, what happened in Rob's story resulted in this church even existing. In that moment, he couldn't have seen what the hand of God was doing, but really an incredible setback in his life. And I wonder what this would look like for you. I wonder what's happening right now. But what if God wants to turn that into an opportunity, whether it's for the gospel to move deeper into you or for the gospel to move around you? What if the opposition is an open door for the gospel? Number three. Number three is this, God is turning rebellion into repentance. This gospel wave that is sweeping across the world throughout history, this is what God is doing. He's looking at rebels and saying, no, you're going to turn around and follow me. 
because I said so. It's one of the most amazing things I see in the Bible is that God, through his powerful voice, the voice that created the world, is just looking at rebels and saying, no more. You're going to turn around, and I'm going to be your king. I am stronger than you. Verse 14, if you look back at it, it says that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And this momentum, guys, is all coming because Jesus is calling people by name to come back home to him. Jesus is calling people by name. Look back at verse 30 through 32. Right in the middle there, it explains how this happened. It says that Jesus is giving repentance to Israel. That's what Peter said kind of at the center of his message. He says, Jesus came to give repentance to Israel, and now Israel, there were a bunch of rebels. Israel's the people that, that have the apostles gathered up right now, right? He said, we're, we're going to gather the, the chief priests and the Sadducees and the whole Senate of Israel, all in rebellion against God. But what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to give repentance to those people. I'm going to give repentance to rebels. I'm going to call rebels to turn around. So people hear the gospel, and then God gives repentance and forgiveness. And here's, here's like very specifically what I'm saying here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, says that we're saved by grace. It's something that we, we couldn't earn, we could have never done. Like Jesus's, his forgiveness for us on the cross was a gift that we didn't deserve. But it says we're saved by grace through faith, through actually like seeing that gift and believing it and trusting in it and accepting it as a gift from God. But then it says we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is a gift of God. Yeah. And here, here's what that gift is. The gift of God is not even just the grace. It's also the faith. It is a gift of God that he's given us the grace that we can even be saved, but it is also a gift of God that he went into your heart and he opened it up so that you could see the grace and want the grace and want the forgiveness. That is a gift of God. That is God coming up to a rebel and saying, no, turn around, and then you turn around and you see forgiveness and you want it and you take it. So the Bible talks about Jesus purchasing us at the cross, purchasing people by his blood, then calling them out by name because he owns them, and saying, wake up from your deathbed and walk. I'm trying to show you the momentum of God here. We can't create that. This is what he does. So not just forgiveness, but repentance, a new heart that wants forgiveness. I think of that, that phrase from Amazing Grace where it says, like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. His mercy reigns. Like, what a, what a concept. The mercy of God is king in this world. Reigns like a flood over our rebellion, over our shame. I'm sure there's a ton of shame in this room right now. Shame for sin. Shame for your past. Shame for what you've done since you actually accepted forgiveness. So much shame that just, it rises up. Or maybe it's not shame, maybe it's anger and rebellion against God. Maybe it's just ignorance towards him. To all of those things, Jesus says, my mercy reigns over that. My mercy, my, my desire to give you what you don't deserve is stronger than your desire to rebel against me. His mercy reigns. Let me give you a little story of, of how this actually plays out in real life, okay? I'm going to tell you this guy's story. Um, this happened back in the, I think the 50s, maybe the 40s, and here's just kind of how he explains it. I had actually gone to a church-related college, but I went on a football scholarship 
not because of any interest in the church. And at the end of my first week, which had been spent in freshman orientation, my roommate and I decided to head out to town and hit some of the bars across the border. We came to the parking lot, and I realized that I was out of cigarettes. So I went back into the dorm, and I went to the cigarette machine. I can still remember it was 25 cents for a pack of Luckies. And I got my Luckies, and I turned around, and I saw the captain of the football team sitting at a table. And he spoke to me and to my roommate and invited us to come over for a chat, and we did. And this was the first person I ever met in my life that talked about Christ as a reality. I'd never heard anything like it, and I was just absorbed. I sat there for two or three hours, and he was talking. He didn't give a traditional evangelism talk to me. He just kept talking to me about the wisdom of the word of God. And he quoted Ecclesiastes 11.3, Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. I just feel certain that I'm the only person in church history that was ever converted by that verse. <laughs> and then listen, listen to what he says. What, this next line is him describing the intern, what, like what God, if you're a Christian, this is what God did in your heart through his, his word, through his voice, through him saying, nope, my mercy is going to be stronger than that. Okay, this is what he does. God just took that verse and he struck my soul with it. And I saw myself as a log that was rotting in the woods and I was going nowhere. Now, one more line, but there's this space between God striking his soul with that verse and then him actually crying out to God in forgiveness. When I left that guy's table, I went up to my room and into my room by myself in the dark, I got on my knees and cried out to God to forgive me. So this man, he was on his way across the border to the bars, forgot his cigarettes, and he, he turns around. Little do we know that it's, it's the hand of God that's bringing him back there. The, the captain of the football team is just sitting there for some reason, and who knows what he said. He's like, hey, come over and have a chat. It's like what he says he did. He's like, come over, talk to me. He's like, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll go talk to you. He's got his cigarettes. He's sitting there talking to him. He reads Ecclesiastes 11.3 about this log, and the Spirit of God, boom, right in his heart, strikes him. And, and he, I, like, on his way across the border, decides, I'm going to turn around and go to my room and receive this forgiveness. That is, that is repentance. Literally means to turn around, to change the way that you think, and then he accepts the forgiveness. Anybody know who, who this guy was? Anyone know this story? We're kind of getting to be a younger crowd. It was a guy named R.C. Sproul. Okay, so some of you guys know who that was. R. C., if you don't know who he was... Uh, a lot of the people that you do know have been influenced by him, but R.C. Sproul has gone on to be like this major theologian, church, church leader, pastor, tons of books, like influenced the world for, for the gospel in a profound way. He's, he's not alive anymore here. He's alive with Jesus. But that, like, that's how he became a Christian. That football captain did not create the spiritual momentum to do, him, do that to him, but he just talked to him about Jesus. So I hope that gives our, our college students some, some inspiration to just talk to your friends about Jesus, man. Okay, here's the fourth one. Fourth one. God is turning history towards his purposes. God is turning history towards his purposes. So this just kind of sums it all up, but this is what, this is what Gamaliel saw. This is what Gamaliel was starting to see, is that as all the council could see was the apostles and they wanted to kill him, Gamaliel started to see that this was the hands of God. The hand of God moving history towards his end. The momentum of the early church could not be explained apart from the hand of God. 
and the, the witnesses of the resurrection, the, these apostles, they started to make plans to tell people about Jesus, and they just move out from there, okay? Listen, listen to what G.K. Chesterton, who was an author and theologian in the beginning of the 20th century, says, describing just the very unique thing that the Christian church is in world history, okay? So he says, right in the middle of these things, so right in the middle of all these other different religions and ideas and movements, like Gamaliel saw, Right in the middle of these things stands up an enormous exception. It is quite unlike anything else. News that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, right in the middle of history, there did walk into the world this original and visible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths, the man who made the world. That such a higher personality exists behind all things had always been implied by the best thinkers as well as the beautiful legends. But then it came. It came on the world with a wind and a rush of running messengers proclaiming the news. And it's not fanciful to say that they're running still. What puzzles the world about the church is that they still behave as if they were messengers. A messenger does not dream about what his message might be or argue about what it probably would be. He delivers it as it is. It's not a theory or a fancy, but a fact. Nobody else except these messengers has any gospel. Nobody else has any good news for the simple reason that nobody else has any news. These runners gather momentum as they run. Ages afterward, they still speak as if something had just happened. They have not lost the speed and the momentum of messengers. They have hardly lost, as if it were, the wild eyes of witnesses. That's what it means to be a witness is that God has broken into history. He's now turning history towards his ends. We're making plans. We've been kind of given this mission to tell the world about Jesus, but God is working in even our imperfect plans. Even as we screw it up, he's like, I think we're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to realize how much God accomplished in spite of us. But as we run around the world as these witnesses who have just, we've just seen the event, we've seen the resurrection of Jesus in our lives, we're seeing God build his kingdom. And what we can say now that they couldn't have said in that moment is that Gamaliel was actually proved right by history. When he said, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, history would now say this emphatically has to have been of God. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and and he really has. And so what I'm going to do now is actually show you a video of the spread of the gospel throughout history. Okay, so you can turn your attention to these screens and, or to the screens and just watch the, the gospel as it gets traded. I might jump in and say a couple random things, but I'll try to let you just enjoy it. So you're going to see empires rising and falling as Christianity is spreading.
invented. standing there and saying, we're not going to be able to stop this. And what we've seen throughout history is that this is exactly what has happened. The gospel has found a way to, to grow up in the soil of every culture. It's spanned across history. It, it just has not been able to be stopped. And there's still a lot of work to do. But what this is all designed to show us, guys, is that we should have a ton of, of confidence. Like, we have a role to play in this. But as Jesus kind of like invites us out into the water, whatever that looks like in the situations of, of your life, we're not meant to kind of look around at the opposition, look around our circumstances, look down at our own feet. But if we keep our eyes fixed on him, if we, if we look at him, if we ride the wave rather than trying to create the wave, if we be a witness, we're going to see what God has done in history play out even more in our city. And so look at these just last couple of verses with me of just a, a picture of, of what the apostles did, because this is what they saw. This is what our lives could look like. In verses 41 and 42. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So guys, they had an incredible confidence they saw what God was doing. They saw that he wasn't ceasing, and so they didn't cease. They couldn't be stopped because God couldn't be stopped. So they had confidence. They also had focus. They realized that the key thing that we're supposed to be doing is talking to people about Jesus, and so they did it. Earlier, they were accused of filling Jerusalem with this teaching about Jesus. And as I look around our city, as I look around our campus, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if we, I don't know if we or the other Christians here have quite filled the, the city with, with teaching and talking about Jesus yet, but that's what's before us. And the last piece, just their joy. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And again, their joy wasn't because they had done something great, but because they realized they were counted worthy to suffer. They were caught up in what God was doing. Guys, that's what lies before us. So we don't have to create the wave. We ride the wave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the book of Acts and what it, what it teaches us about you and your mission. But Jesus, amidst just the, the big things that were happening in the early church and that have happened throughout history, we do see you just calling us to step out onto the water and, and all the different ways that looks in, in our lives. And we need confidence from you, God. We need help to, to look and focus on you and not on our own circumstances, not on our own two feet. And so I pray that as, as we worship right now, that you would lift our eyes off of ourselves and onto you and what you're doing, that we would get to, to be a part of just riding this, this gospel wave here through Madison. We love you. We thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for turning us rebels into, into people that know and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>